Does one win make a rivalry renewed? We'll find out this week on Iceman and Coach. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Iceman and Coach Sports Show brought to you by Ice Time Nation. A big shout out to everybody as a part of Ice Time Nation. I want to thank you for sponsoring the show. I want to thank you for tuning into the show. This is the Iceman, Matt Freights. Normally, I'd have the coach with me, but unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depending on your perspective, the coach has some family obligations this week. So what you get is a heavy dose of Matty Ice. This weekend in sports was actually pretty interesting because I feel like there were a lot of different storylines heading in, at least in the game of football, that you kind of felt like you could really get excited about. The slate on Saturday for college football was epic, but there is one game people were talking about coming into the weekend, and there is only really one game coming out of the weekend that people are talking about, and that was the Tennessee Volunteers hosting the Alabama Crimson Tide. Alabama, of course, is a storied program under Nick Saban. They have had many successes, very few failures, and they come in with a pedigree and a currency that really people should be scared of. Nick Saban coaches fearlessly. He's seen just about everything there is to see in sports and in football. And I think when you see Alabama come into a game like this, you feel very, very confident that it's not going to be a wash, that they're going to make a game of it. And even if they lose, it's going to be a very competitive game. Rarely do they get blown out. Tennessee, on the other hand, is a program that hasn't really amounted to much in the 21st century. Really, if you think about it, I think the last time they were really relevant was 2001 when I believe they played or were close to playing in the national championship game. Back then it was called the BCS title game. But really, they haven't done anything of substance over the last 20 years or so. Ever since their national title, I believe it was in 1998 with T. Martin. They didn't win a national title with Peyton Manning. But once Philip Fulmer moved on, they have had kind of a cavalcade and a carousel of head coaches there. And not one of those folks, including Lane Kiffin, who has his own program at Ole Miss rolling right now, couldn't be successful there and bring that program back to prominence. The SEC has continued to get more rich in tradition and has continued to be a juggernaut in terms of talent top to bottom. And the coach has always talked about that top to bottom, the SEC isn't perfect. There are teams in the SEC like your Missouris, like your South Carolinas that have really been punching bags for a lot of the other teams in the SEC, especially lately under the Nick Saban era. But I think remotely, it is the best conference in football. I really don't think that there is that much of a crazy statement to be made when you say that. So coming into this game, Alabama was going on the road to Neyland Stadium, going on the road to Tennessee, Rocky Top, all of that kind of stuff. This is the biggest game that Tennessee has had probably in 20 years, I would say. I don't think that that's crazy to say that. And you know me, if you've listened to this show, whether it's Drippin' Sports or Iceman and Coach, you know that I'm not a big fan of hyperbole. You know that I'm not somebody who is a prisoner of the moment, who's going to come out and say outlandish things just because I saw something incredible. But I think it's safe to say that now the second time in, I think, three weeks, College Game Day has come to Knoxville, and they're coming for the biggest game of the year. And I'm going to tell you something as just a casual fan. I do not have a horse in this race. I love college football, and I love football in general, but I'm not somebody that has a horse in this race in any way. This game delivered, and it delivered more and beyond expectations than I think anybody could have imagined. And what we saw was the Tennessee Volunteers for the first time in the Nick Saban era at Alabama 
getting a win over the Alabama Crimson Tide. Think about that for a minute. 15 years, 15 games, and Tennessee hadn't had a victory against the Alabama Crimson Tide. That is unbelievable. And when you think about the range of outcomes, statistically speaking, the range of outcomes would allow for Tennessee to sneak at least a couple of wins there. So for Alabama to really run the table and never have an issue with Tennessee, never stumble against Tennessee is just, it is incredible. But Tennessee ends up winning on a game-winning field goal that was partially blocked at the line of scrimmage. The ball looked as if it wasn't going to make it. It does make it, and an absolutely epic game comes to an end. And Hendon Hooker and the boys at Tennessee, they get that big victory. And in my mind, it cements Hendon Hooker as the Heisman favorite right now. I know CJ Stroud is really the pick everybody's focusing on. But until Tennessee loses and until Hendon Hooker has a bad game that you can really point at and say that game right there is going to lose him the Heisman, to me it is his award to really win, or excuse me, his award to lose. During the broadcast, which was a great broadcast, don't get me wrong, after the game was over, the announcers stated the rivalry is back. And I asked that question in the cold open of the show because I genuinely want to know what constitutes a rivalry. I know that regional rivalries have always, they've always existed in a way that has been palpable. And I know that those rivalries, especially within state, have always been there. And traditionally, in some cases, they have been lopsided, but it doesn't take away, I don't think, from the rivalry because there's a geographic element to it. Even in times, let's say Duke and North Carolina in basketball, let's say that there's a period of time where Duke is a lot better than North Carolina. Over the course of the rivalry, there has been a lot of parity and there certainly has been a lot of ebbs and flows for each program. So I think it's going to even itself out in the end. But I think when you look at Alabama, of course, everybody is a rival of Alabama because everybody wants to be Alabama. Alabama is really the the pinnacle of the sport right now in terms of an empire that you want to build. And I know that other schools are trying to build that. Of course, Kirby Smart at Georgia. Of course, Ryan Day at Ohio State. I mean, these schools are prominent in the in the national picture and all that. But I think really Alabama is what everybody is striving for. And so for Tennessee to finally beat them, it's a huge deal. But what does it mean for a rivalry to be renewed? Does one win bring that back? And I have to say that from my perspective, and as a, as a fan of the Boston Red Sox, the New York Yankees have been our rival since I was a kid. And just the other day, I saw the video of the Red Sox and the Yankees having that big fight. I think it was in the 2003 ALCS. That was the famous game where Pedro Martinez hilariously threw down Don Zimmer, who had come at him in a very combative way. And I tweeted about it and said that the kids today are never gonna know this rivalry that the rivalry peaked in 2003, 2004, and I really don't see it becoming that prominent again. And I think because the emotional state of it has completely changed. At the time for that rivalry, the Red Sox hadn't won anything and really wanted to be the Yankees. And here we are today, four World Series later, and it doesn't feel as special. Of course, between each fan base, there's going to be some bad blood and each fan base is going to want to win and you want to beat the team that you've always hated. And maybe that maybe that extends to this particular rivalry. Maybe Tennessee has always wanted to be Alabama, at least in the Nick Saban era. And maybe historically there has been a lot of back and forth and Tennessee has had a little bit more of a puncher's chance. But this is one win. It's one win still relatively early in the season. I can guarantee you that nobody wins a national championship in October. Nobody wins it in November. We all see it happen in January. You have to continue to win. And Tennessee has done that. They've won game after game after game. They're 6-0. They vaulted up to number three in the country. But I don't think that this necessarily means that in some way 
they now have Alabama's number. That the rivalry is just this huge thing where next year it's gonna be competitive or the year after that it's gonna be competitive. It's a one game sample and look at what they had to do to win. Granted, a win is a win and you're gonna take a win every single time. But I do ask these fans to kind of take a tone, tone it down a little bit. I don't really think that you can say that all of a sudden you're back and you can put your, your you have firm footing next to a team like Alabama, a program like Alabama. You're not quite there yet. This is a, a small sample of success and you want to build on that. And I, we have to see the results. The proof is in the pudding. The rest of the particular weekend, there was a lot of games. But one thing I have noticed is that a lot of really good teams have lost. And we've seen a lot of teams in the top 10 or creeping around the top 10 get into the discussion and immediately lose. And now they're not a part of the discussion. And I have to ask you a fundamental question. And it's something that I've actually wondered. Parity is wanted in college football. We, the people, the casual fan like myself have been complaining, at least in terms of the playoff, that we don't watch the playoff or we don't like the playoff because it's always the same team. It's Alabama, it's Georgia, it's Clemson, it's Ohio State. And while there is something to be said about that, those teams and those programs are the best because they recruit the best. They have the best resources. And you know what? They also win. They consistently win and they send guys to the NFL. And those are the things that recruits want. They not only want playing time, but they want exposure. They want to be able to achieve their goal of winning a national title, which is going to help them achieve the goal of getting to the NFL. But I think what we see is that parity all of a sudden doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to make the season outcome any different. And I ask you a fundamental question. All the teams that have lost, that have been in the in the conversation, out of the conversation, the Utahs, the Floridas, the Tennessees even, are they going to matter come January? Is the outcome of the season going to be any different? Alabama loses and everybody freaks out because Alabama loses so infrequently. But does this loss mean they're not going to make the playoff? Georgia is still out here killing everybody after a two-game stretch in which it seemed like they didn't know what their offensive identity was. And now here they are just rolling through Vanderbilt as if they're not there. Does it change anything? Does it change anything that Ohio State still looks really, really good? And what if the playoff at the end of the day is those three schools and some random school? Because I'll tell you what, three teams from the SEC are not going to make it to the college football playoff. It's going to be two. It may be Georgia and Alabama, maybe Tennessee, maybe. But I think I, I don't really feel as if all of a sudden the paradigm has changed and we're going to get all these teams rotating and cycling through into the college football playoff. Really, the parody kind of sucks. In a way, I mean, from a casual perspective, it's nice to see teams keep winning and then losing. And you want to see a lot of teams in the discussion. But until we have an expanded playoff, it really doesn't matter. It just matters on a week to week basis when we're watching these games. And while that is fun for the casual fan, it stinks for me because come January, I'm probably not going to be paying all that much attention, although I probably will want to pay attention for the purposes of this show. But I really think that it's worth asking you. And the other thing I want to ask is one of the prominent teams right now, the game of the week coming up here in college football, I believe Eugene, Oregon is going to have college game day is UCLA and Oregon. I will be the first to admit that when Oregon lost so embarrassingly to Georgia, I did put the death knell in them. I said that their season was done, and I said Bo Nix was not a guy that you could trust to win a big game. We had seen him at Auburn lose so many games against high-ranked opponents, not really look particularly good, 
And then you bring them to Oregon, who doesn't have the same resources as, say, an Auburn or maybe even another SEC team. And now we're expecting him to be this, this hot commodity that's going to win them a national championship. Well, color me wrong because they are 5-1 and one right now and they're number 10 in the country. The number 9 team in the country has to be one of the most surprising teams right now in the top 10, and that is the UCLA Bruins with Chip Kelly as their head coach. And the Pac-12 has two really, really good teams in the top 10. After this weekend, they will not have two teams in the top 10 because inevitably somebody has to lose that game. But is the Pac-12 actually relevant? And maybe they have some good squads. Obviously, USC is a good squad. They just lost to Utah. Utah, we're not sure about. Obviously, they're a talented club, but they lost a couple of games earlier in the season, and you kind of wonder about them. And at the end of the day, is the Pac-12 champion going to be undefeated? Up until now, we haven't really seen that from the Pac-12, at least in the playoff era. And is that team actually going to matter? Like, if you look at UCLA or Oregon right now, let's say one of those two teams actually wins the Pac-12. Do you think that they can beat Alabama? Do you think they can beat Georgia? Hell, do you think they can beat Tennessee on a neutral field? I'm not convinced of that yet. The Pac-12 hasn't really given us, the fans, any reason to have confidence in them. We've always doubted them. They seem like a B-level product compared to some of the other conferences out there. And I should say, compared to the representatives of some of the other conferences out there, like Clemson historically. Now, Clemson has been continuing to rise after last year. The offense under DJ Uyunglele seemed like it might be a little bit sputtering this year. They've certainly turned it around, and they have a big matchup coming up this weekend against another inexplicable top 15 in the Syracuse Orangemen. But let's get away from college football, and let's actually talk a little bit of baseball. So we had Coach's cousin Alex on a couple of weeks weeks ago when we talked to just general baseball philosophy, the evolution of the game, all that great stuff. And in the end of it, I asked him if he felt like the Phillies or the Cardinals were going to win the wildcard series. And he said that the Phillies squeaking in, getting a consolation prize, they couldn't do anything right. They couldn't hit, they couldn't put balls in play. And he felt that the Cardinals were going to basically run them out of the building. Well, what we have seen now is the Philadelphia Phillies are in the National League Championship Series, and they've done so by playing with confidence. They have pitched well, they have hit well, and they really caught fire when they needed it. I know that a lot of people put them down and felt like they weren't really worthy of being in the playoffs because they didn't have that, that edge at the end of the season. It seemed like they just couldn't make it in. They just were missing that it factor. But all that it takes is getting in, and they did that. And they end up taking out the reigning defending World Series champion Atlanta Braves on the way to the National League Championship Series. And I think that it is, it is amazing to me because it is just a great story. They have the former MVP and Bryce Harper playing on their team. And I remember when he took that contract, it didn't seem like they were going to make anything of it. It didn't seem like that was the contract that he deserved. And I know he had a couple of years there where it felt like he really wasn't living up to the expectations of that contract. But I really think that the Philadelphia Phillies took these slights personally. I think that they looked at it as, okay, this is a new season. We're starting over. We're starting fresh. No matter who we have to play, we're going to do what we have to do to win. And right now they are pitching well, they're hitting well. And you can tell they have that it factor now. Something switched when they got to October. And that does happen for a lot of teams. And now they have a chance and they're eight wins away from winning their first World Series since 2008. And I can tell you that I have a lot of friends who are Phillies fans, but specifically my friend Ryan. I know that he's very excited watching games with his son Mateo, and they were at one of these playoff games against the Braves, and it's got to be a great feeling. Now on the other side of the bracket, they have the San Diego Padres as their opponent in the National League Championship Series. This was a team that many, myself included, had buried when the Fernando Tatis injury took place. Excuse me, not injury, suspension happened earlier in the season. And it felt like 
This team can't catch a break, and they end up taking out the Los Angeles Dodgers on the way to the National League Championship Series, a team that they have been trying to become through all these free agent pickups and trades and so forth. And I think that when you see the record, they just haven't really gotten over that hump yet, and people continually compare them to the Dodgers and say they're nowhere near that status. It's kind of like Tennessee and Alabama. Tennessee is trying to be Alabama. They are trying to build their program up to a place where they can rival that and on a consistent level. And I know that the Padres are trying to do that, but the, the market of LA and the market of San Diego, those are two completely different markets from a business perspective. And the Dodgers have the ability to spend money and waste money. They can take a flyer on a free agent. They can take a flyer on a trade and maybe it doesn't work out for them and they have to fork over the money for that person. They can afford the luxury tax and they can afford to be able to make mistakes because their investors and their backers and their TV money is so much more than San Diego. San Diego is not a small market per se, but it is not a market that is really focused on sports. Having been to San Diego, my mom lived there. There's a lot of stuff to do there. So sports fandom is not really big there, or it certainly isn't paramount the way that it is in some of these other cities, small or not small market, that there's just more of a focus on sports in some places. And I mean, look, the Chargers are no longer in San Diego. They are in Los Angeles. And so the Padres are consistently hearing that they are never going to be the Dodgers. They're never going to beat the Dodgers. And the Dodgers come in having almost a historic season from a wins and losses perspective. And goodbye. They are gone. I do wonder if the window for the Dodgers is closing. Obviously, they have a lot of talent. Dave Roberts is a great manager. I'll always have a soft spot for Dave from the 2004 ALCS. But you have to ask yourself, does getting into the playoffs matter? And that's all that it takes to get consistently hot. And even on the American League side, the Seattle Mariners make the playoffs and it's exciting, but they didn't really make anything of it. The Tampa Bay Rays, who have been that darling of the ball who never spend any money, they didn't make it either. The New York Mets, 100 win season. They started the season off red hot, had such a huge lead in the National League East, and they blew it. And they ended up making a wild card spot and didn't make it. And you have to ask yourself, some of these teams make it and they just catch fire. The season starts over in the playoffs, and for the Padres and the Phillies, it certainly did. And while maybe they didn't have the wins and losses outcome that they wanted in the regular season, they're getting the wins and losses outcome that they want in the playoffs, and that's all that matters. Both teams are eight wins away from the World Series. In the American League, you have some teams that made the field that were a little head-scratchy in terms of they're not consistently in the playoffs, so you kind of ask yourself, are they really legitimate? The Mariners, the Guardians, and I just want to say something about the Guardians. The Guardians have one of the worst names I've ever heard in sports at a professional level, and I am somebody who is generally for when we change names of sports teams because I feel like when we point out things in our society that are problematic, we should do what we can to be empathetic and try to change it. And to me, even though there's a lot of history of the Cleveland Indians, the way that the Indian was portrayed was definitely appropriation. And it definitely was insensitive and borderline insulting. I mean, Chief Wahoo, while an iconic logo, very problematic logo. My issue is not with them changing the Indian's name. My issue is with the Guardians and the rollout and everything associated with it. It's not too dissimilar from the Washington Commanders, which is a, a rollout that I just absolutely hate. I do not like the logo. I do not like how they made the uniforms. None of it works for me. The Guardians is the same way. I'll be honest with you. The Guardians look like they chose somebody who had an entry in a contest to be able to do it, like a kid did it. It just doesn't feel professional. So the Guardians being in the playoffs, it doesn't feel legitimate to me. The New York Yankees, though, historically have been in it, and the Houston Astros lately have had that kind of franchise run 
that every team is trying to build. Now, the Astros, it took a lot of losing to get there, and some could make the argument that they tanked. Obviously, they had the cheating scandal from 2017 and all that, but you can't take away the fact that those guys can play. And now in the American League Championship Series, you have the Houston Astros and the New York Yankees for, I think, the third time in the last six years. This feels a little bit different. This is not your rivalry from 2018 or even 2019. This is completely different. And I think that you're going to see a fire series here. And I, I just feel like the MLB playoffs are set up for a great set of games and a great series of games. And I think the World Series is going to have at least one team in it that's going to be somewhat polarizing and move the needle. I think the Houston Astros moved the needle because they cheated. The New York Yankees are the Yankees, so you either love them or you hate them. And I think if the Phillies make it, I really feel like Philadelphia is a great sports town, no matter what you want to say about their fans and about the way that they treat other fans and so forth. But I think it's a great baseball town, and I think that the World Series is going to have a great matchup regardless. There's going to be a lot of young talent in it. And if Aaron Judge makes the World Series after the season that he just had, I think that it is amazing. But I do want to ask you, does Major League Baseball actually care about ratings? And obviously, we know that the answer is yes to that. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it isn't. But my point in asking that question is, do they care about the Yankees being in it? With all the drama that just took place with Game 5 and the postponement and not saying anything for two hours after already saying that it was going to be delayed, it kind of played into this conspiracy theory that Major League Baseball really wanted the New York Yankees to move on because a team like the Cleveland Guardians is just not a sexy pick from a ratings perspective. Baseball is slowly dying in terms of fan engagement. The fan base continues to get older. I've said this numerous times on this show, so we're not gonna wax nostalgia about that stuff, but it does beg the question, does it really do anything for baseball if it's the Padres versus the Yankees? Sure, they can play into the history from 1998, but the Padres really aren't a sexy national pick. Baseball is already a pretty regional sport to begin with, and I think that they have to care a little bit about who makes it. I think that they'd rather have the Phillies and the Yankees because those are big markets, big cities, big fan bases, passionate fan bases, and I think that that's what Major League Baseball wants. Either way, it's going to be exciting if you love baseball, but from a ratings perspective, obviously Major League Baseball wants the matchup that is going to bring a lot of casual fans there, mostly because they want to see one of these two teams lose, and I'm not sure that the San Diego Padres bring that to the table, but the other three teams do. And so either way, I think baseball is in a good spot here. We're going to talk about a sport that we've never talked about, at least with the coach, and that's boxing. Boxing is a sport that I'm very familiar with. It's one that I train in. I, I genuinely love the sport. And I feel like boxing is in this place where it's continually, like baseball, dying over time because the advertising, the fights, and everything, it just continually goes downhill. I don't feel like it's promoted very well. Over the weekend, we had Deontay Wilder back in the news because he had a first-round knockout against some guy that I'm not even sure I could pick out of a lineup. I'm not sure any of my boxing friends could pick out of a lineup. It was some tomato can. They basically cherry-picked an opponent it almost seemed like a fix because they want to get Wilder back into the race in the heavyweight division. Let me just be clear. The heavyweight division doesn't mean anything the way that it used to. There are a lot of great fighters in a lot of lower level divisions, but the heavyweight division has always been the division that has been the cornerstone of boxing on a national level. The heavyweight champion of the world, that was currency. It meant something. When you walked into a building in New York City, that you they knew you were the heavyweight champion of the world. That meant something. Today, if you're listening right now, and you're a casual boxing fan, do you know who the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world is? Of course you don't, because one, they don't advertise, and two, there is no undisputed heavyweight champion. And for some reason, the promoters are not trying to get to that outcome. Alexander Usyk, 
who was from the Lomachenko camp, a great fighter, came up from cruiserweight and worked his way up, basically swept all the belts at cruiserweight and said, I'm coming for heavyweights. He took the belts from Anthony Joshua and he beat him in a rematch. And here we are, he's sitting there waiting for Tyson Fury. Tyson Fury who has quote unquote retired. And all of a sudden now we see that Tyson Fury is taking some fight, I think with Dillian White. What is happening? The heavyweights need this unification. They at least need the fight. This is where the money is. And somehow these promoters, I don't get it. I don't understand what is going on because we, the fans need the great matchups. Can you imagine where boxing would be if they just cut the bullshit and we could get to the matches that we wanted? Imagine the heavyweight unification title fight. It would be on pay-per-view. It would be advertised. It would be amazing. And you know what? It would actually be a good fight because Tyson Fury is a big dude. He's got good footwork. He can box. He obviously made Deontay Wilder look silly in that second fight. And I think Alexander Usyk is coming up. He's a smaller guy. I mean, he's, you saw against Anthony Joshua in the rematch that he really struggled with the power. And how was he going to hold up over the course of 12 rounds? And you know what? He struggled in round nine, came back and took round 10 and just took it to Anthony Joshua in round 12. He's a guy that can go in deep water. And man, that fight would be amazing. And you know what? Tyson Fury would sell the fight for him. He would sell the fight for all the promoters because he's that good at what he does. Some people might consider him a heel, but I think he just knows how to play the game. He knows how to promote. And for some reason, we're not going to get it. We're going to get another retread of another rematch. It's like WWE all over again. And it's just, it's infuriating to me. It's infuriating to me because we're not getting the best matchups. Speaking of the best matchups, George Haney took out George Cambosis over the weekend. And right now we need Haney versus Lomachenko. Lomachenko has a fight coming up. And if you're not familiar with Lomachenko, go look him up right now. Go on YouTube, Google his highlights. He is an amazing fighter. And while he lost that fight in the pandemic to Teofimo Lopez, he's still one of the best fighters in the world. And he's slowly been making his comeback. He won a rematch with Lopez. Lopez ended up saying no, lost the belt. So many things are happening. If Lomachenko wins this fight over the weekend or later this month, get him in front of Devin Haney. That's the fight that we all need. At these lower level divisions, we seem to be getting the fights that we want, where it seems like guys like Errol Spence are stepping up to the plate. We're going to see Spence and Crawford later on in the year. That's a fight we should have had a couple of years ago. Errol Spence was driving a little bit too fast, 125 miles an hour, nearly died. So some things happen here. But we need Lomachenko and Haney because Haney is a great fighter. Cambosis is also a great fighter, but Haney just had way too much for him. And yes, the fight went to a unanimous decision, but it was really Haney's fight to lose. I mean, it, there was just no contest here. And we need these fights to happen because I want to be able to talk about boxing on here. I want to be able to have boxing matter to you all. Right now, we are talking about football because football matters. Football moves the needle. You all care about football because football is America's sport. It's just the way that it is. And I want boxing to be back up there because I want to be able to talk about it and I want to be able to debate the coach on boxing. Maybe it's not something he's familiar with or maybe it is. And that's the thing is these promoters are not giving us the ability to, to dive into it because they themselves are not really marketing these fights. And it's, it's just frustrating. But let's move off of boxing and let's move on to what you all want to hear. And that's the NFL. And I want to start actually with Daniel Snyder. I know a lot of things happen over the weekend in, in the games and all that. And that's all well and good. But we do a lot of analysis on this show. And I don't think we do enough analysis of the things that happen in between the lines. That's where Drippin' Sports started is I wanted to talk about what happened in between the lines. Daniel Snyder recently made the news again for another negative thing. This guy's a shitbag. I can't stand him. But he made the news because he apparently had hired private investigators to follow around some of the NFL owners because he wanted to have dirt on them in the event they were going to try to essentially vote him out of their little social club. All this came to light last week through some leaks seemingly in the commander's organization. And what we have seen is that's a mess. 
Now it's interesting because if you think about it from Daniel Snyder's perspective, this leaking out is not really a great thing for him. It's certainly not a great look that you are hiring private investigators to investigate other people. And what he was trying to do was gather evidence so he could say or have some leverage against the owners in the event that he was gonna have to sell his football team. So it's not really a great look and maybe it's not a great look for the NFL and the owners. Now, what we do know is that John Gruden took the fall because of this lawsuit and investigation that was happening with the Washington Commanders. I believe it was Bruce Allen, who was at the time the GM of the Redskins, and John Gruden was the fall guy because John Gruden got fired for saying a lot of shitty things and insensitive things. And earlier this year, I talked about how he still doesn't get it. I mean, John Gruden still doesn't understand that what he did was wrong. And while he maybe feels wronged by the NFL, because he was the fall guy, he still said those things. And he needs to he needs to rectify that with himself. But Dan Snyder is such a piece of crap because he consistently does awful things at every single turn. Workplace environments, he's like Robert Sarver in that regard. Just terrible ownership of a club that I know many people who are passionate about, they wanna see him gone. Stealing money from the owners, and I asked many times, at what point are they going to be able to get this guy out of ownership? It seemed like they were never going to get something that pinned to him. And you know what it took? Him investigating the other owners to try to have dirt because he wanted to be able to say, yeah, you may think I'm bad, but look at what they have. And I get it. He wants to extend the runway in which he has to sell his team. But I can tell you right now that after the news came out about what he did, the owners want him out. And there's so little morality that goes around with the owners in this social club because they're all billionaires, they're all white billionaires who have never really had to do anything or worry about anything in their life. Any legal troubles, they can sweep under the rug with money, which both Daniel Snyder, Jerry Jones, Robert Kraft, all those folks can do that. And it just, it kills me. But at this point, it seems like we're finally going to get some resolution to this issue. And finally, Daniel Snyder is going to be kicked out of this club. It seems like it's headed that way. What I really will be interested in is the kind of dirt that he has on these NFL owners. I mean, we know about Bob Kraft. We know about Jerry Jones. Those things are not surprising. What I want to know is the things that happen in the shadows and the things that happen that maybe we're not all privy to. Because the things that we know about Jerry Jones and Robert Kraft, those guys got caught. I want to know the things that happen behind closed doors. I want to know the kind of language that people use. I want to know when some owner takes swipes at Roger Goodell. I want to know all that stuff. And I think Roger has seen it. I think we know that in that investigation with Washington, he saw something in there that made him not want to release that footage. So what they decided was, who can we find to take the fall for this? And there he was, John Gruden. Now, happily, the Raiders were able to get out of that $100 million contract, so it was a win-win. I'm sure Mark Davis had something to do with that. But in the end, Daniel Snyder is making too much trouble for these people, and they're going to vote him out. And I think it's it's it couldn't happen soon enough. But speaking of owners, Bob Kraft got married over the weekend to, I believe, like a 47-year-old doctor. And he got married in this ceremony in New York City, some hugely private event. It was like 250 people. Apparently, Ed Sheeran played, Elton John played, Meek Mill played. It was crazy. One of the attendees at this wedding was Tom Brady. And that in and of itself doesn't make news because we know that he had a great relationship with Bob Kraft. Even if he's gone on from New England and Bill Belichick and all that stuff, Tom has to be able to look back at his time in New England and feel as if it was a good time. I mean, he won six damn Super Bowls with the Patriots, right? Obviously, there's a lot of good things to be had, and maybe it didn't end the way that we all wanted it to end, but he and Bob Kraft are tight. So that's on a Friday night. There's a game on Sunday in Pittsburgh. Normally, the way that these cadences work is there's a walkthrough on Saturday the night before because they're going to walk through their game plan. Usually, it's through like a bunch of scripted plays and so forth of this is what we're going to do. The Tampa Bay Bucks looked 
terrible again against the Pittsburgh Steelers. This is a Pittsburgh Steelers squad who hadn't looked all that great themselves. Mitch Trubisky didn't look all that great. Kenny Pickett hadn't looked all that great. Mike Tomlin seemed like maybe his time in Pittsburgh was ending and they ended up getting this win against the Bucs. Now, the other thing that we've talked about here is Tom Brady has every Wednesday off. Tom Brady doesn't have to practice with his team on Wednesdays. So this particular week, he takes off Wednesday, which is normal. He ends up probably not practicing with the team on Friday because he's in New York City for this wedding and he doesn't get back in time to go through walkthroughs with the team on Saturday. So what did he expect on Sundays? There's footage of him screaming at his offensive line. Well, what did you expect? You weren't there. You weren't there. And again, Tom Brady has a lot of currencies. He has seven Super Bowls. He won a Super Bowl for that team. And you know what? They're probably never going to sniff the Super Bowl again after he leaves. I get it. I do understand that when you are good at what you do, there are some concessions that need to be made for you. But I think what we're seeing is the physical manifestation of these concessions. Tom being able to be away from the team as often as he is, is not conducive to winning. There, there's no chemistry being built. It doesn't seem like that team is in any way a cohesive unit. But see, that's the thing. That's what won them the Super Bowl in 2020 is they all bought into Tom. They believed in Tom and they have a lot of injuries. Don't get me wrong. So there is certainly that factored in, but I don't think they believe in Tom the way that they used to. It doesn't seem like a happy marriage right now. And that's what they need. Tom Brady is three and three. It's the worst record he's ever had this far into the season. And another guy who's in the same boat is Aaron Rodgers. Now, both of these guys are ancient in terms of traditional quarterback age. Aaron Rodgers, I think, still has a very high ceiling left in him. He certainly is still very good. I just don't think the Packers are very good. The Packers lose this week to the Jets, and now they're three and three, having lost to two New York teams in a row. And this is the worst place that Aaron Rodgers has been after six games. It begs the question, are both of these guys nearing the end? Tom Brady may be losing it from a talent perspective, and I don't think that he can hold up this way. The way that he's getting hit, the pressure that he's been under this season, I just don't think that he can hold up. Aaron Rodgers, on the other hand, is probably like, I don't need this in my life. I've done enough. Now, both of these teams have a lot of time to turn it around. There's 11 games, but I'm just not seeing it right now. And I'm going to make a few bold predictions here in a minute, and they might be one of them. But I just think it's interesting that both of these guys who are so talented and have so many accolades associated with them are struggling so much. Their teams are struggling so much. And I think both of these teams are struggling to find an identity, struggling to find a chemistry, and you can physically see it out there on the field. Some teams that are not struggling for chemistry, though, all reside in the great state of New York. I'm going to read these records off to you, and I want you to ask yourself or tell yourself, pretend you're telling me, actually, how many of these records are surprising. The New York Jets are four and two. The New York Giants are five and one, and the Buffalo Bills are five and one. If you'd woken me up from a coma that I was under from the end of last season's Super Bowl to now, and you woke me up and you told me these records, I would tell you that two of them are a crock of shit. I would tell you that the Jets and the Giants, there's no way that they are five and one, six games into the season or four and two, this far into the season. Traditionally for both of these squads lately over the last five or six years for the Jets, it's been a little bit longer. Their season's over by week six. There's no hope left. Like being 500 or sniffing 500 would be ideal for both of these franchises, but being where they are now, it's crazy. And they're beating some pretty good teams, I have to admit. The Jets going to Lambeau and taking out Aaron Rodgers is just incredible. And the Giants beating the Ravens. The Giants have now beat some really good teams. They beat Green Bay. I guess we don't know if Green Bay is a good team, but both the Giants and the Jets share the fact that they beat Aaron Rodgers at his own game. And they beat Lamar Jackson. I mean, they came back against both of these teams, the Giants did. That's the crazy part. But I think we all knew that the Bills were going to be good. 
The Bills finally take out the Chiefs at Arrowhead, and I have to ask another question similar to the Tennessee-Alabama discussion. How much does this win mean in the grand scheme of things? Really? The Bills obviously have lost to the Chiefs the last two years. Last year's divisional game was epic. We all know this. They talked about it all week long. The Bills finally get that win at Arrowhead Stadium, but it's week six. They're only five and one. There's 11 more games to go plus the playoffs. How do we know that the Chiefs aren't going to play them again? And I think that's where we're going to really find out where the Buffalo Bills are. Are the Buffalo Bills ready to take that next step? This is a great win, do not get me wrong, but I don't think that it means that all of a sudden they have figured it out. In a one-game sample, you're always going to have the range of outcomes where one team is going to win a bunch and so forth. And I think if you played 10 times, one of these teams would probably win five or six times, right? And I think that this is one of those games where the Bills finally had the ability to overcome and finally had the ability to win. But what does it mean? All these pundits are talking about how this is huge thing and they finally did it. Okay, great. They won a week six game. A lot of teams have won in week six and never won the Super Bowl. That's the goal. Same thing for the Philadelphia Eagles who get a big win over the Cowboys on Sunday night football. Now they get a big win against the Cowboys at home against a third string quarterback who threw three interceptions. Oh, and by the way, they had a 20 to nothing lead and nearly blew a 20 to nothing lead. Division wins are always great. You always want to beat the teams in your division. You always want to win, especially in prime time. A win is a win, and the Eagles are 6-0. But again, it's week six. What does it mean a month from now, two months from now? Are both of these teams going to be able to take it to the next level when we get to January? The Bills obviously have shown that they have a lot of talent and a high ceiling in them. So I think there's more confidence in me in January knowing that the Bills are probably going to be okay. The Eagles made the playoffs last year, squeaking in at 9-8, and eight, and they've looked great this year. Jalen Hurts has looked great. That offense has looked intimidating. Their offensive line has been intimidating. But I haven't seen them do this in January. I haven't seen them do this against a truly great opponent yet. The Dallas Cowboys had a great defense coming in, but no offensive potency. And still, the Cowboys almost came back. So I think that people need to kind of slow their roll a little bit with some of these wins and losses and predictions. Like, they're great wins, but they don't mean anything. They might mean something for later on when we're talking about seeding in the playoffs or possibly winning the division, but what do they mean for the grand scheme and winning the Super Bowl, which is the goal? They don't really mean anything. People need to keep that in mind. Apparently, the Vikings are 5-1 and one after another win. It's funny, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about how Kirk Cousins couldn't do it in primetime, and yet they're one of the quietest 5-1 and one teams out there. I have to ask, are the Vikings or the Giants more fraudulent in 5-1? and one? The Vikings have a lot of talent on offense. Their defense has always been suspect. Of the Giants, though, I, I feel like the Giants are fraudulent because you continually ask yourself, how are they doing this? At least with the Vikings, you can see that they have Justin Jefferson and they have Adam Thielen and they have Dalvin Cook and they have Kirk Cousins. What do the Giants have? They have Saquon. That's about it. And it's just, I think the Giants are more fraudulent because we constantly are asking ourselves how. And if you continually ask yourself how, how can that be legitimate in any way? So I said bold statements. Before we move on to another segment on the show, I'm going to make some bold statements. And maybe one of the things that this show has been lacking is some of these bold statements. Maybe we've been too conservative. So without the coach here, the Iceman is going to take a few liberties, and I'm going to make a few bold statements. So here we go. Number one, the Green Bay Packers will not make the playoffs this year. I think Aaron Rodgers is facing probably the most adversity he has faced. He's at the end of his career. He's getting paid a lot of money. He really doesn't have a lot of guys on his squad that I think that he rolls with. Offensively, Alan Lazard is fine. Obviously, their running back situation, they're a run-first team. 
But the way that they played the last couple of weeks, I'm going to need to see more from them. And if they can't beat the New York teams, who I understand have been improved, but the Green Bay Packers shouldn't be losing to teams like that, especially with a lead. And now what we're seeing is a 500 team. And Aaron Rodgers has never been 500, having started all six games this far into the season. So I just don't think that they have it. So my first prediction is that the Green Bay Packers will not make the playoffs in 2022. Number two. While the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to win their division because I just don't think that the other teams have the staying power to be able to win, the Bucs are going to lose in the first round and Tom Brady is going to retire. Tom Brady is not 100% bought in on this team. You could tell when they came into the season, all the stuff happening in his personal life, you can tell on the sideline. Something is not right about the season with Tom and I think that there's just not enough talent to overcome all this adversity and they're never going to find their spark. They're going to play a really good team in the wild card round, and I don't think that they have it. I think they're going to lose that first game, and I think Tom Brady is finally going to realize that this is as good as it's going to get, or it's already been as good as it's going to get, and he's going to hang it up for good, and unfortunately for him, go back to an empty house. So that is my second bold prediction. My third bold prediction, Cliff Kingsbury will be fired by Thanksgiving. The Arizona Cardinals are in trouble. They are a team without an identity. They're boring and Cliff Kingsbury is 100% responsible for that. He's got a very dynamic talent in Kyler Murray, and they have DeAndre Hopkins coming back, and they have some weapons on offense, but they can't seem to get out of their own way. Cliff Kingsbury doesn't seem to be able to take that next step as a coach, and honestly, it's consistent with the way that he's coached his entire career, underachieving and overpromising. He has continually failed up in his career, and I just think that this is it. I don't think they can overcome this awful start, I don't think it's going to get any better for them, and I think Cliff Kingsbury is going to be fired by Thanksgiving. My last bold prediction, and this one is probably going to be the most controversial of all. I think at the end of the season, Bailey Zappi will be the New England Patriots starting quarterback. Listen, I was a fan of Mac Jones and the drafting of him, and I think Mac is a great kid. I think he's got a lot of talent, and I think he has the ability to be a very solid quarterback in this league. But over the course of his very young career, you've never really felt like Mac was in control in any way. You never felt like Mac was capable of a truly great performance. He's had some really solid performances, but I'm talking about truly great. Him getting hurt was very sad, of course. You don't want to see a player get hurt, especially on your own team. And Brian Hoyer getting hurt was a veteran. But in comes Bailey Zappi, and through three games, two starts, he's 2-1. and one. And after the performance against the Browns, where he was 24-34 for 302 touchdowns, and again, this is one of the best defenses in the league. The Cleveland Browns may not be good because they don't have Deshaun Watson as their starting quarterback, but their defense is good. And playing on the road in a hostile environment, Bailey Zappi looked great. When you watch him, he is gaining confidence by the second, by the play, and the players seem to respond to him. Bill Belichick has made a move like this before, and honestly, if the Patriots keep winning, I just think Bailey Zappi is going to be the guy. So that is my fourth bold prediction. What are some bold predictions that you have? Reach out to me, Matty Ice, at Matty Ice Freights is the handle on Twitter. You can reach out to at Iceman and Coach on Twitter as well if you want to hit up the show. Let me know what some of your bold predictions are for the rest of the season. And now...
You know what that sound means? That sound means it is time for crunch time. And while normally it is a rat-a-tat-tat between me and the coach, it is going to be a rat-a-tat-tat of just my picks for this particular week. So starting off, we have Syracuse traveling to Clemson in an ACC battle. I see Syracuse as a fraudulent team. I think they've played a really weak schedule. Clemson is the cream of the crop in the ACC. Give me Clemson at home. UCLA traveling to Eugene, Oregon in a Pac-12 showdown of two top 10 teams. College game day is going to be there. Oregon, to me, seems like the team that is a little bit more tested, having played a great team in Georgia. UCLA with Chip Kelly right now is the shining star. I think that their flame is going to be flamed out. Eugene is a very, very tough place to play. Give me the Ducks. Texas traveling to Stillwater, Oklahoma to play Oklahoma State and the Cowboys, who just recently lost to TCU. Texas having come off a really shaky win against Iowa State. Oklahoma State needs to redeem themselves. I think that they are one of the better teams in the Pac-12, so give me the Cowboys. Kansas State traveling to TCU to play top 10 ranked Horn Frogs. Kansas State, I think, has a nice story. I think that they're a great club. TCU, I think, is playing on another level. They've had some signature wins this year. They are one of the best teams in the country, one of the best teams, if not the best team in the Pac-12. Give me the Horn Frogs. Switching to the NFL, the Packers traveling to my home, the Washington, D.C. area, to play the Washington Commanders and Taylor Heineke. Carson Wentz is out. I think the Commanders are better off without Carson Wentz. Packers come in struggling. Give me the Commanders here. The New York football Giants travel to Jacksonville to place the Jacksonville Jaguars, who have been struggling ever since that signature win against the Chargers. I think the Giants are coming in riding high. The Jags are coming in riding low. The Jags need it more than the Giants do. I still think that the Giants are fraudulent. Give me Doug Peterson and the Jags. The New York football Jets travel to Denver to face the Denver Broncos and former chef Russ Wilson. Russell Wilson is hurt with a hamstring. He's obviously got a shoulder problem. The New York Jets are riding high. Denver is a tough place to play, but honestly, I have zero confidence in the Broncos. Give me the Jets. The New England Patriots on Monday Night Football rekindling their rivalry with the 1985 Bears in a former Super Bowl showdown. Patriots hosting the Bears. Bailey Zappi at quarterback. The Bears are not very good. Give me the Pats here in a blowout. And moving to baseball, the Philadelphia Phillies and the San Diego Padres start the National League Championship Series. Both have young squads. Both have a lot of confidence coming in. The Phillies, to me, seem like they have a little bit of a different it factor with Bryce Harper playing well, the pitching, Reese Hoskins, everything. Give me the Phillies in a seven-game series. And last, the American League Championship Series with the New York Yankees and the Houston Astros. Both of these teams hate each other. America hates both these teams. You know what, though? I think the Yankees riding the high of Aaron Judge are going to take it here. Give me the Yankees in seven. All right, everybody, that is crunch time. I love crunch time. I wish it was here with my man, Coach. But you know what? It is what it is, and we will rekindle that next week. And one last thing before we get out of here, and that is OTW. OTW, where Coach and I usually give our personal flair on the sporting world. Normally, we would have Coach's Pick of the Week. Coach is not here, so we're going to skip that element of it because I'm not a big gambling guy, but I feel like I do owe you an Iceman stat of the week. I have talked about many times that we are six games into the regular season, and right now, there are three divisions, the NFC West, the NFC South, and the AFC North that don't have one team over 500, and that, my friends, is abysmal. 
What are you looking forward to this week in sports? There's a lot of great teams that are out there that are going to be playing. There's a lot of great matchups to look forward to. I can't wait. My in-laws are going to be here. We're going to watch a lot of football over the weekend. I think it's going to be a ruckus time. Before we get you out of here, please support the Pub Time Podcast where you can find the coach in another way. They're doing a lot of great serial killer work because it is October. Halloween is right around the corner. So go check them out. Hit that follow and subscribe button on whatever app that you use. And please support this show by following, subscribing, rating, reviewing, and please visit MattyIceMedia.com for the other podcasts that the network has and supports. It means the world when you support us, and please take the time to do that. From everybody here at the Iceman and Coach Sports Show, I hope that you have a great weekend. Ice Time Nation, this is Iceman and Coach. Opinions and viewpoints expressed on the Iceman and Coach Sports Show are those of Matt Freights, Brad Powell, and their guests, and not necessarily those of the Matty Ice Media Network. The Iceman and Coach Sports Show is exclusively owned by Matt Freights and Brad Powell and is brought to you by the Matty Ice Media Network.